1: Hi, welcome to Food Sleuth Radio, where we help you think beyond your plate. I'm Melinda Hemelgarn, a registered dietitian and investigative nutritionist on a mission to connect the dots between food, health, and agriculture and find food truth. And today I'm delighted to welcome a former guest back, Carrie Gillum. She is a veteran journalist with more than 25 years' experience covering corporate America. She took on in-depth coverage of the agricultural industry as a senior U.S. correspondent for the global newswire Reuters. She left in 2015 to become research director for the nonprofit consumer group U.S. Right to Know, whose mission is to educate and inform consumers about the often hidden practices and policies that shape and spin the food system. She has been recognized as one of the top journalists in the country covering food and agriculture, and I wanted to have her back on with us because of her latest book titled Whitewash, the story of a weed killer, cancer, and the corruption of science. Welcome, Carrie.
0: Thank you. Thanks for having me.
1: I'm really glad that you wrote this book because, like you, my home is in the Midwest. We both live in the Mississippi River watershed We know that glyphosate, according to the U.S. Geological Survey data, is in our rainwater, it's in our rivers and streams, it's used extensively on farmland, especially with the commodity crops, corn and soy. I want to know why you focused, however, your efforts on writing about this one herbicide.
0: That's a really good question. I see glyphosate, which you know is the chemical, the weed killer. Many people know it as Roundup. It's the active ingredient. It's the most widely used herbicide in the world. And we know it's pervasive, as you said, in water and in our food and our soil, found in our own bodies routinely in urine tests. But the bigger picture is really the pervasiveness of pesticides overall and how we've become so dependent on these pesticides in our food production system. So I see glyphosate and Monsanto's push to prominence and pervasiveness of this chemical as really the poster child, if you would, for this larger problem. Because what has happened with Monsanto, the hiding and the secrecy and the whitewashing of of danger associated with this chemical is really a story that's repeated by many other chemical companies and many other pesticides. But, you know, the the prominence and the global dominance of both Monsanto and this particular chemical, I thought, really made it a good vehicle to pull the story together.
1: Mm -hmm. And you interview many agricultural researchers and farmers and those of us who are looking at the health consequences of this compound. And like you, when I have written about it, Even among my own peers in the field of dietetics and nutrition, I am often told that I have a bias, and you address that in the introduction to your book. As a journalist, aren't you supposed to present both sides? Isn't that your role? And you write that the only bias you hold is for the truth, and I wonder if you could talk a little bit about some of the challenges that you had as an agricultural and science reporter in covering this chemical and some of the hardships that you faced in bringing the truth to the public?
0: Oh, sure. Yeah. I came at food and agriculture as a complete novice, as an empty slate, really. I had been covering the banking industry and healthcare for many years, didn't really know anything about our food and farming system other than I lived in Kansas and I knew there was a lot of wheat here, right? So, um, But when I was assigned by Reuters in the late 1990s to dig into this and this was my beat and this is what I needed to really delve into deeply, that's exactly what I did and You know, at that time, I ate genetically modified food products. I sprayed Roundup in my yard. You know, I thought it was a great weed killer. I saw Monsanto made a lot of money and was a favorite on Wall Street and investors, you know, was a darling of investors. And, you know, I had no reason to believe there was anything amiss. But the more that I got into this, the more farmers I talked to, the more scientists I talked to, the more research that I read, the more I compared sort of Monsanto's public message and propaganda to the reality on the ground um, and the reality in the published literature, it it became clear that it didn't match up. I mean, the story didn't match up. And so I would present both sides in my stories. Monsanto says this, however, these researchers say this. And that really did not sit well with Monsanto and others in the agrochemical industry, and as the years went on and I learned more and was able to be more intelligent and articulate in my presentation of the facts, they really did. They tried to get me fired. They tried to get me kicked off my beat. They had people who appeared to be independent, but we found out later really weren't right scathing articles about what a horrible journalist I was and that sort of thing. So, But, you know, I'm not unique. They've done it to reporters of The New York Times and uh, Mother Jones, they've done it to Pulitzer Prize winners, you know, they, I guess they've done it to you. It's sort of a badge of honor, I think. It means we're doing our job well.
1: <laughs> mm-hmm. Exactly. Well, you had to file a lot of Freedom of Information Act requests to get at the heart of what was going on at some of the federal agencies that are really designed to protect us. And I think that the beauty of that, and thank you for that hard work, uh, that hard investigative work, because... And I'm sure you find this as well, even personally, that you think that, or we think, that if a product is sold, then it must be safe because our tax dollars are funding scientists at agencies such as the EPA, USDA, FDA, that are designed to protect us. But you found that that wasn't necessarily the case through your FOIA requests.
0: Yeah. And that, you know, it's just disappointing. It's frustrating as a taxpayer, as a consumer, a public citizen. You want your leaders, your regulatory agencies, you want them to be doing their job and and protecting the people, protecting your families. And so when you see that that isn't really the way it works, it is just incredibly disappointing and profoundly frustrating. But that's what the documents indicate when you do Freedom of Information Act requests, as I sort of that's my bread and butter. I have thousands of documents, and I got about 800 new ones yesterday from the Mm. EPA. You know, you do see this narrative where political pressure, power, corporate interests definitely are a priority within these regulatory agencies, and particularly the EPA. And it's not to say that there aren't good people with high ethics who are trying to do their jobs in the EPA. We've seen through the documents many scientists in EPA point out or try to point out concerns that they find with studies specific to glyphosate, Monsanto, as well as other pesticides. And then you also see how they get shut down and how they push and they fight, and but they get pushed back. And, you know, ultimately it is the corporations with a lot of money who generally prevail mm-hmm. uh, with getting these products out on the market. And it's noteworthy to point out that, We don't pay scientists at the EPA to do new research. What we pay them to do is to look at research that's already been done. And most of the research that they get when they're looking at a new pesticide or a pesticide like glyphosate is research that's been paid for, conducted, and given to them by the company that's going to sell it and make money off of it.
1: Yeah, isn't that amazing? I mean, you'd think that that would be seen by any rational critical thinking investigator as a conflict of interest. Because it is, if for example, if someone is a reporter who has a link to a company and they write something, or a researcher, you have to present your connections to a company because it's seen as a conflict of interest.
0: Right. Well, and here, in, you know, these cases, like the EPA knows, that these scientific studies that, that are prepared, many of them that are prepared by the registrants, are conducted and paid for by the registrant. But that's the way our system works. We decide we don't have the money, the budget, the priority to pay independent for independent work to be done. So we rely very heavily on the registrants. Now there's a whole separate thing that goes on, which we talk about in the book, which is the ghostwriting, which is sort of the fakery, the research that does appear to be independent, but then we have found out that it's actually written, drafted, edited by the companies but hidden in such a way so that it appears to be independent. So you have both.
1: Mm-hmm. Um, yes, and these individuals have been exposed in the past. The New York Times, I think, wrote about Kevin Fulta, University of Florida, and his relationships with the pesticide industry. And I know that he also speaks to registered dietitians, my own peers. And for those of us who don't have a background, in agricultural science or soil science, chemical toxicities, it's hard to know who to believe, especially when these products are presented as an answer to, quote-unquote, feeding the world.
0: Right. That's the primary talking point, the feeding the world. And we could spend a lot of time talking about why that doesn't hold up in terms of yield benefits and different climates and the different limitations in countries that do have starvation and, and food scarcity problems. It's usually not a yield issue. It's usually a distribution issue, a political poverty, that sort of thing, issue. We do need to understand that most of the genetically modified crops in the world today, planted and cultivated, are designed not to yield more, not to be more nutritious not to help combat disease or blindness or vitamin A deficiency. They're designed for the main purpose of being sprayed with glyphosate, the weed killer, the subject of my book. But back to what you're saying, people like Kevin Fulta, there are many of them. I call them sort of the secret soldiers, you know, the army that's deployed by Monsanto and others in the chemical industry to do their work while appearing to be independent. And the, the companies, Monsanto in particular, they internally speak of it in that way. They know that it won't carry the credibility if people know they're associated with it. So mm-hmm. they want these people like Kevin Fulta who appear to be independent and they will send money to their research programs and they'll book their airline tickets and we've seen with Kevin Fulta and others, they'll put together presentations for them to deliver as though they're independent PowerPoint presentations. We've seen where they'll draft articles and policy position papers for these individuals that will go up on websites or in magazines that will carry the name of the person who appears to be independent, but it's written by the PR firm for Monsanto. Word for word, we see this. And it's so deceptive and so deceitful. And that's why it's so outrageous, because you have these giant powerful chemical companies that are working so strategically to deceive us. And it's, you know, setting aside the issue of whether or not the chemical is dangerous or not, you can just be outraged at the levels of deception that have gone on for so very long.
1: Mm-hmm. And when you were writing this book and putting together the results of your searches and your FOIA requests, was there anything in particular that really shocked you or grabbed your attention over anything else?
0: There are so many. One, I, I could give you lots of examples. I mean, one is what happened with a 1983 mouse study that was given to the EPA. And it was actually a study that was done by Monsanto to show the safety of glyphosate. But when the EPA toxicologists looked at it and they saw these rare tumors show up in mice that had been dosed with glyphosate, but not in mice that had not been, not in the control mice, they said, well, this is looks carcinogenic. This looks like a problem. And Monsanto came back and tried to tell them that they weren't looking at it right. They weren't assessing it right. It was probably false positives. And this study was very big, very important to regulators around the world. And when you trace the documents and you see how these EPA scientists fought hard for years to prove that this study showed these dangers and how Monsanto wielded power and brought in some paid experts to convince the regulators that they were not reading it correctly and that sort of thing. It went on and on and on. Finally, the EPA told Monsanto to redo the study. Monsanto refused to redo the study. And again, this went on for many years, but finally it resulted in the EPA essentially overruling its own scientists to side with Monsanto and say that that the tumors were not significant and the study did not show signs of cancer. And so that was pretty eye-opening for me. But there are many examples of that. I mm-hmm. mean, another one that I could cite that is always my jaw-dropping one is an example of a um, nonprofit that was set up presumably to be an independent scientific sort of think tank that would weigh in on issues of food and agriculture and chemicals, particularly GMOs and glyphosate, and they would write critical reviews, and this was to be called academic review. (laughs) And what we see in the documents is that Monsanto is talking to the person they want to set this up, and they're saying, you know, we want to keep Monsanto in the background. We don't want anybody to know that we are behind this because it will affect their credibility. And that organization has become sort of another secret soldier, an attack dog to attack scientists and journalists and people like you and me who bring truthful information out into the light.
1: Mm -hmm. Let me take one break and remind our listeners that if you're just joining us, you are tuned into Food Sleuth Radio, where we are joined by veteran journalist Carrie Gillum. Her new excellent book is titled Whitewash, the story of a weed killer, cancer, and the corruption of science. You spent a lot of time speaking with farmers, going out in their cornfields, having good discussions in the cabs of their farm equipment, (laughs) and I wonder, do you get a sense from them that... They might be suspicious that perhaps the chemicals are harming them and their community members, but they don't have a way out? Or do you think that they believe the University Extension ag specialists who tell them that this is the way to conquer weeds? Where do you see farmers on the spectrum of understanding how dangerous this chemical is?
0: Well, it really has evolved, I think, over the last twenty or so years. Obviously, when glyphosate first came onto the market, and over the next decade or so, it worked great. There wasn't a lot of talk about how dangerous it was. Farmers loved it. it was safer than other herbicides on the market. There was paraquat on the market, which is most acutely toxic. If you swallow some of it, you will die you know mm. in two to three weeks usually so there are you know. Farming is a dangerous job. People don't ordinarily think of it that way, I don't believe, but farmers really are on the front lines for us, you know, producing our food. And if they are conventional farmers and they use chemicals, they decide not to be organic or they, you know, they use a lot of chemicals, they know that they are facing dangers. And it, it's sort of a weighing of the danger, you know, which which is going kind of to be the most harmful. And for them, glyphosate was seen as, is an easy answer because it was supposed to be so safe. Over the years, it stopped working as well. It doesn't kill weeds as effectively as it did. Farmers now have to use more of it or they have to combine it with other chemicals. It's costing them a lot more money. So just from that aspect, it's not nearly as appealing to them. And then when you layer on all of this additional evidence about causing cancer and other diseases and ailments. You know, they really are sort of looking for other alternatives. Um, And many of them, there's a movement, there's a whole movement to either go organic or to just reduce the pesticide load. Many farmers are, are moving to sort of a middle ground where they're trying to return to more traditional practices of using cover crops or rotating their crops more, using more natural means to sort of reduce weeds and address different pests that affect their crops, um, there's a real, I think, awakening and awareness that's moving across the United States and other countries. So that's, that's encouraging. But of course, there are many that are just entrenched, and it's like anything else, you know, if, if you haven't been affected, now the farmers who have cancer or have diseases, you know, they're believers, <laughs> right? Mm-hmm. But if you haven't been affected yourself, you might be less inclined to be worried about it at this point. Yeah. That's what I'm hearing.
1: Uh Uh-huh. And, you know, I speak to so many farmers who have made the switch away from using chemicals, and I'm sure they've told you the same thing. You know, they were tired of feeling like they couldn't hug their kids when they came in the house, or they started to see, gosh, everybody on my county road has this certain kind of brain cancer, or children in my community seem to be having cancer more often. And hopefully they connect the dots. But ultimately, and you address this in the book, the importance of farm policies to help farmers move to provide financial incentives to make different choices.
0: Right. I mean, our country, our policies right now, again, are influenced by the agriculture industry. And maybe a lot of people don't realize that. It is one of the most powerful industries in America and one of the most powerful lobbying bodies in Washington, D.C., they are right up there with the military industry and with the pharmaceutical. So they have a lot of sway with lawmakers, with policymakers, and our policies right now are really driven towards conventional farming, producing these core crops like corn and soybeans, to promoting genetically modified technology, to promoting pesticide use. And in comparison, the policies that support organic or reduced pesticide use or more sustainable agroeconomic policies really pale in comparison. And that's, we talk about that a little bit in the book. We do need a policy shift, a paradigm shift to support these farmers who want to be safer and to want to provide food that has reduced pesticide loads and don't want to be coming into their homes and hugging their children at night, often in a range of fungicides, insecticides, and herbicides.
1: hmm Yeah, and I am hopeful, and I know you are too. In terms of if we can inform consumers and drive consumer demand, that will, or it certainly has the power to shift the marketplace. It has been working, but I'll tell you, one of the big surprises that I've learned over the years is, and it's emphasized also in your book, is that you know we've got these residues in the foods that we eat and feed our families every day, and yet... The FDA and USDA are not testing for residues in our food of the most commonly used herbicide in our farming system. How can that be possible? That I say
0: that has been a pet peeve of mine for so many years. And every year at Reuters, when the FDA and USDA would put out their reports, and they put out these giant reports, they do thousands of tests, they thousands of food products for hundreds of different pesticides to track residue levels in the food that we consume because it's supposed to be important. And there are concerns that if the residue levels are too high, it could be dangerous. I mean, there's a reason they do it and they've done it for decades, but they never test for glyphosate, which is, as you said, the world's most widely used, prevalent in our food production. It didn't make any sense to me. And I've hassled with them for years and years on this. The freedom of information documents that we've received are alarming, truthfully, when you see the political powers that be that are at play here. The SDA, and we put this in the book, this is just crazy. The SDA finally did, under pressure, after being sort of taken to task by the General Accounting Office, did say, that they would start doing some limited testing. Well, they actually didn't say it. I found it out through documents, and then they acknowledged it, but that they would start doing some limited testing for glyphosate in food, and they started that process, and it didn't go very well, and they suspended the program. They now supposedly have restarted the program, but they still have yet to provide any data, any public information about any updated testing there's sort of one rogue chemist inside the FDA that did testing of glyphosate residues in oatmeal products, baby oatmeal, found mm. really high levels. He tested honey. He found really high levels of glyphosate in honey, including organic honey. And he tried to raise some alarm bells with within EPA, and they basically told him to be quiet and go away, and actually pulled him off of food residue testing. So... Again, it's just a sign that our government doesn't seem to be as interested in protection of public safety as they are in protection of corporate profits. Mm -hmm. But the other things you you do see in those that I find really interesting is what the government does do in terms of residue testing. You find rising levels. You know, of 85% was the latest report. 85% of the food tested had pesticide levels. Right. pesticide residues. And that was the highest in, in a decade. The levels are just going up and up.
1: Right. Well, it's interesting because, you know, dietitians are told by the industry that, oh, these levels are so small. They're safe. The EPA says they're safe. And yet, the more we learn about, say, endocrine disruption, for example, if glyphosate is one of those endocrine disruptors. We find that it's hard to conceptualize this but yes in parts per million even parts per billion levels they do have biological activity especially for children
0: yeah i mean that's definitely a concern and it's a debate right now the the government the epa tells us as you said and the companies they basically say what the companies say don't worry about it the levels are small you know even if they exceed the legal guidelines for safety they're still small they're not going to hurt you but it's worth noting that there's no consistency on this what the United States regulators say is within an allowable level is not what Europeans say mm. is it within you know it's a different and it's not only do it's different for every different pesticide every different food and it's notable that the EPA has raised what they consider to be the allowable levels repeatedly when they are asked to do so by the chemical companies So it seems more of a shell game than something we can really rely on. And there are a number of research scientists around the country, around the world, who say, as you said, there is no amount that is safe. There is no amount that is good for us. And we're consuming so many different combinations of pesticides on such a regular Mm -hmm. basis that it's just foolhardy to say that there would be no impact on our health.
1: Yeah. Carrie, we just have a couple of minutes left and I want to allow you to bring forth anything in the book. It's extensive. It's well researched. It's extremely well written. I recommend it for book clubs, holiday gifts, anybody who cares about the environment in which we are leaving future generations. But is there anything that you want to make sure our listeners know about this book and your work?
0: I appreciate you saying that. I really do hope people read it, and I hope they understand it's not, I hope it's not anyway a, a dense, sort of scientific, technical, jargon laid book, because to me, this really is a story of people and farmers and moms and dads and the kids, you know, we, what we feed our children every day, and our environment and our future. And what really resonates to me is that Rachel Carson and Silent Spring made such waves 55 years ago, and she raised the awareness and sounded alarm bells about where we were headed with this pesticide use, this sort of unchecked use of pesticides. And she got the attention of people. We formed the EPA. The environmental movement got underway and really started getting its feet under it. And now it seems like we've forgotten those lessons, and we're just on this ever-faster pesticide treadmill that more and more research is showing is putting our children at risk and our future at risk. And I think the only real solution to that is is awareness and for people to pay attention and to understand what's happening so that they can raise their voices and hopefully Mm -hmm. slow it down or stop
1: it. Well, this book is an excellent place to start and have no fear. It is an easy enjoyable read. I I say enjoyable because, you know, I really believe in finding food truth. That is the purpose of this program. And I depend on authors and researchers and writers such as yourself to bring forth the truth and to do the hard investigative work that was required to make this book so informative, and yet easy and interesting to read. So I thank you very, very much. And I, I want to thank our listeners for joining us. I want to remind everyone that Food Sleuth Radio is produced by Dan Hemmelgarn at KOPN Studios in beautiful downtown Columbia, Missouri. The book that we've been discussing is titled Whitewash, the Story of a Weed Killer, Cancer, and the Corruption of Science. The author, veteran journalist, Carrie Gillum. Thank you so much for being my guest. And thank you so much for the hard work that went into this incredibly important book.
0: Thank you. I really appreciate it.